Hello, everyone. Uh, as you can see, I'm missing my co-host, Batman, and I'm the butler. Elle is Robin. Uh, so welcome to uh, Disrupt TV. We're going to introduce our guests in reverse order so you get a chance to learn about what we're going to talk about in the next 60 minutes. So why don't we start with Jonathan? Hi, Jonathan Becker, president of Shark Sports and Entertainment. I'm in a simulated version of the city of San Jose in the metaverse, and I'm going to talk a little bit about disruption of sports and entertainment. Terrific. Elizabeth? Hey, um, I'm in the Seattle area. I'm the chief product officer for the Vision AI company, Plainsight. And I'm going to talk about how business leaders are implementing solutions with computer vision and how that has really shifted from being only accessible to kind of large enterprises and is now really practical for kind of organizations of almost any size. That's awesome. Chris? And I'm Christopher Lockhead. I teach category design, and uh, I think um, uh, Ray is a very handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to argue with that. All right. <laughs> uh, let's begin the show. All right. Three, two, one. <laughs> Welcome to Disrupt TV. Thank you for joining us. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, our distinguished guest, your questions live using hashtag Disrupt TV. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Surviving and Thriving in the World of Digital Giants. You can find Ray on TV just about every day. He's on Fox Business, CNN, uh, CNBC, Wall Street Journal. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. He's the chief digital evangelist at Salesforce. He's also the author of The Pursuit of Social Business Excellence and executives around the world capture and listen to every one of his insightful and innovative insights every day, and of course, on his tweets. Uh, when he's not leading, keynoting, speaking, you know, facilitating events for Salesforce, you can find him on business outlets like uh, Bloomberg and, of course, his posts and his columns and blogs at ZDNet. So, but hey, it's not about us. It's about our awesome guests. And who do we have to kick it off today, Vala? Ray, you and I have one of our favorite guests back on the show. Chris Lockett is an entrepreneur, category designer, former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO, startup advisor, author, newsletter creator, and podcaster. He doesn't sleep. Okay, number one Apple business podcaster, number one Amazon marketing author, uh, uh, Play Bigger and his latest book, Niche Down, author of the top 1% business uh, newsletter, and a category designer. Again, three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO. 
he kind of hung up his gloves as an operating guy when his company Mercury sold uh, for 4.5 billion. <laughs> uh, Chris created a new management discipline called Category Design, which we're going to talk about. He's been an advisor to over 50 venture-backed startups, limited partner investor in uh, some of the top venture funds, helped handful of companies go public. He's been part of countless M&A transactions. He's been on a cover of magazines, which I think is a big deal, but he thinks it's not. Uh, and you can follow him on Twitter. And he's an early adopter, obviously, at Lockheed, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. Welcome back, Chris, to Disrupt TV. Vala, thank you. That introduction is going to make my mom really happy. <laughs> she, she should be very proud. By the way, I, I cut your bio in about a third because we only have 20 minutes. So, sorry. So, I want to know, Vala, does somebody get a bonus every time Ray's on TV? Is that what happens? <laughs> there is some sort of... There's some sort of distributed ledger revenue sharing uh, community that he's a part of because he's uh, he's definitely on TV on a very regular basis. <laughs> well, it is all on the chain and we donated all the charity. So don't even worry about it. So if I get paid on TV, it will go to charity. But um, boy. we can talk about anything here. And, and I just want to start here. Uh, you have the number one dialogue podcast on Apple iTunes. But the topic I want to start with is something you and I do all the time. It's authentic dialogue like why is it so hard and why aren't more people doing it like what's holding people off on this so i think um the absence of authentic dialogue is one of the biggest problems in our world right now as evidenced by what's going on and here's fundamentally why what most people call having a conversation is actually called waiting to talk so there's an absence of listening um, and um, in addition to that, when somebody's talking, the lens that most people listen through is, oh, fuck, I like that. Oh, I don't like that. Ooh, that's wrong. Ooh, that's right. Ooh, that makes me feel good. Ooh, that makes me feel weird. So there's a judgmental thing we're always doing. As opposed to, if anybody's read um, Peter Senge's The Fifth Discipline, he talks about di dialogue. It's a genius book that you know most people don't talk about anymore. And and what he says is you should come from a stance of curiosity. So like, uh, actually, I was just talking to a buddy of mine about Ray, last time you were on Follow Your Different. You know, you and I don't agree on everything. And he's like, I, it's amazing to hear two guys who don't always agree laughing and having a good time and clearly, you know, really enjoying each other. And that's because when you say something I don't agree with, the stance I try to take is, hmm, interesting, curiosity. Tell me about that, Ray and try to hold back judgment and actually listen. And if I, you know, maybe you change my mind, maybe you don't. And then we kind of nudge each other and push the, put the, uh, pass the puck back and forth. And here's the other aha. I, like I think many people, have people in my life who I disagree with on many topics, who I love, who I know are legendary people. And so, the substance of who you are as a human being matters more than whether or not we agree on abortion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think the reason why you have the number one podcast and people gravitate towards your thinking is, um, as Ray mentioned, authenticity. It, it, you know, it, your thoughts, your words, your actions are very much aligned. Um, but you mentioned the word curious and, and, and the fact that you can be in a room with someone you disagree with. So there's a level of humility and curiosity and unselfishness 
the le most legendary people I know, they're, they're, they, they're the ones that eat last. They're, they're, they're unselfish. Um, very focused, very driven, but at the same time unselfish. You wrote a blog last month about personal branding in 2020, and you mentioned Tom Peters, who may have been the first person that mentioned personal branding in 1997 in a fast company blog called The Brand Called You. And then, which, which he's one of our favorite guests. He's been on our show three or four times. And you said today, 75% in this blog, you said 75% of children today want to become YouTubers. Uh, like only 6% want to be lawyers, 13% want to be doctors, just to put it in perspective. You said 86% of young adults want to become influencers, whatever that means. Um, but so, so you, you talked about, you know, the me, me, me part of this, this movement. So my question to you is, what will this personal branding look like in the future? And I say that because, you know, we talk about like metaverse and social and mobile. Accenture just published a report this week their annual report. And in the report, it says by 2034, average adults will spend equal amount of time in immersive virtual worlds as in real worlds. What does that mean for personal branding? What do you think we're going to be doing 10 years from now in order to really connect in a meaningful way if half our time is in this digital world? Okay. So there's a lot here. So I think in the last, you know, since the pandemic started, one of the greatest entrepreneurs that we should all thank is Eric Yuan, founder of Zoom. And he's one of the most legendary entrepreneurs working in tech right now. And in the last two and a half, three years, Eric Yuan has spent a sum total of zero time on building his personal brand. So <laughs> brands, brands are about us. And any asshole, it's funny, I just got a, a, a request from a PR firm to have some guy on my podcast. I went and I looked at his uh, Instagram page, and the first video I saw was him doing this. Hi, guys, it's me. <laughs> That's bullshit. Nobody cares about that stuff. So there's a very big difference between an influencer who wants you to be interested in them, and that's the, the, the end is the means, period. They want to be famous for being famous. Hmm. Well, here's the aha. Customers, consumers don't give a shit about you and me. They give a hmm. shit about them. Hmm. And so if you're a creator who's on a mission to make a difference in a contribution, that's very different than, hey, guys, it's me. You're the head for breakfast. Follow your, follow your passion. <laughs> and that it's asinine. And that shit scales because uh, thanks to the Internet, stupid scales. Um, the second thing is people who turn themselves into a product mm. suffer greatly as a result. Here's yeah. a simple example. Scott Galloway. Scott has uh, completely undermined his credibility in most of Silicon Valley with anybody with an IQ larger than, a shoe, than your shoe size. Mm. Because... If you fall into the me disease or the other the other phrase we have for it, we like to call it Gary VD. Um, if you get Gary VD, um, you think it's about you and um, you're playing a game called how many people like my thing. And that algorithm game gets rewarded the more outrageous you are. And so Scott, for example, crosses some insanity line where he's got a video of himself topless doing some insane uh, rap about his sex life and Viagra and shit. And he blows up his deal with, I can't remember who it was. And so he's 
So if you're suffering from Gary VD, it's all about <laughs> you. And the way you get rewarded in the me disease is the more outrageous you are, the more rewarded you are. And so they just become cartoon characters of themselves. <laughs> And I, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. I, I don't guess that much on podcasts anymore because, frankly, most business podcasts are stupid. Um, but have you ever had this experience where you're going on a business podcast? You're talking to the, the host like this, just normal conversation. Sure. They press record and they go, hi, hey, welcome, douchebag nation. Blah, 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 blah. And you're like, who are you, man? What the? It's, and so it's just a world that is about themselves hmm. for no particular reason. And they want to be rewarded for being liked. And here's the other really evil part. In order for the influencer game to work, the influencer has to put themselves above the follower. Listen to the words oh, no. on social media. Oh, no. We call them followers. And if I'm Gary VD, you have to have me on a pedestal and you have to be low and you have to worship my ass. And, and, and that monetizing of envy is a really horrible way to make a living. Lot to wow. unpack there. Lot to unpack there. <laughs> but, 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 but let's take that lesson there. I think there's something here, right? So those same concepts apply to branding and categories and enterprises. And it's in an area that you pioneered, right? So when we think about categories and category design, right? Like, why is it hard to get categories right? Like, why do people mistake this, right? Is it the same type of mistake that they're making in influencer marketing that they're also exactly doing in same. enterprise branding? It's exactly the same. And here's why. Human beings are arrogant. Mm. We thought that the sun revolves around us. And they, <laughs> they tortured the shit out of Copernicus when he said, no, 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 it's the other way around. We think that we make us successful. Other people make us successful. You see the guitars behind me. I, I can barely play guitar, but I can play a little bit. And uh, if I have a, if I go to the beach with my friends, I live in Santa Cruz, California, and we're having a nice night and we're uh, having some wine and some food at the beach and watching the sunset, I might bring a guitar and sing some songs. And here's the difference between me and Bruce Springsteen. Fans. <laughs> I have 15. He has 15 million. Or 150 million, probably. <laughs> and so, um, and in business context, the category makes the brand. That is to say, brands are about us. Me, 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 me. I'm going to, branding is I take this thing that's hot and I burn it into your skin. That's what branding, that's where the word comes from, the branding of livestock. And so, brands are about us. Categories are about customers, their problems, their opportunities. Uh, and and how your product, technology, or whatever it is you're bringing to the world can make a difference for them. That's what matters. And so somehow in marketing and entrepreneurship, just like uh, we hated Copernicus, <laughs> we inverted the whole model. And the whole marketing industry has their head up their ass because they think the world cares about their brand. No one cares. What they care about is what difference can you make for me. Yeah, I want to just, uh, Chris has an amazing blog site and he writes about all of this. There's videos of him talking about it. He, when he, when he talks about category design, he talks about everything we value, we, we were taught to value. 
And category design is about management discipline for designing and dominating a market category of your choosing. It's, it's a strategy for radical differentiation, which means getting out of the comparison and, and competition game, standing on your own unique and distinctively uh, designed values. So, so please, I encourage our audience to just go learn about category design, which leads to my question. One of your other blogs, you talked about why marketing leaders get fired. And you highlighted how some companies reference their biggest competitors in their marketing campaigns. And in that blog, you said this incredibly profound. As a former CMO, I loved it. Legendary marketing is not about creative. Legendary marketing is not about branding. Legendary marketing is about designing and dominating a category that matters. But you also say not all companies can do this. Can you expand on that? So there's a lot of lies we get taught in business. Maybe the biggest one is the following. Most people's business strategy is this. There's an existing market category and we are going to compete for existing demand to increase our market share. And the way we're gonna do that is with a better product and a better brand. That's what we've been taught. That's every book you've ever wanted to read about competition. That's Innovator's Dilemma. And uh, that's most marketing and entrepreneurship books. Uh, here's the problem. That's not how business works. That is a comparison game. Nobody legendary wants to be compared. They want to break and take new ground. They want to be irreplaceable. When Benioff starts Salesforce, he's not competing with Siebel. He's saying there's a new way to do this called cloud. And he's saying there's a fork in the road. Category designers force a choice, not a comparison. There's some company, I can't even remember their name. They're morons. They compete with Zoom and they run these giant ads. Is it Werby or something like that? Yeah, they yeah, run, yeah, yeah. They run these giant <laughs> fucking ads that say, you know, uh, nine out of 10 dentists prefer <laughs> Werby, right? And it's like um, uh, over Zoom. Yeah. Now let's do a little exercise. Pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants, pink elephants. Don't think about pink elephants. Stop thinking about pink elephants. You can think about anything you want. Not pink elephants. Not no 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 pink elephants. Stop thinking about pink elephants. What's present in your mind? Pink elephants. Pink elephants. Yeah. <laughs> they, they can just Venmo Zoom uh, at that point. Yeah, yeah they, that, that company might as well take um, their entire cash position and Venmo it to Zoom. It's over for where we. And You're Salesforce didn't do that. Salesforce did not talk about Siebel ever. Benioff no. didn't no acknowledge the existence of Siebel. Jobs did not acknowledge the existence of BlackBerry new and different and the data shows we did a research project for my first book where we studied every venture-backed tech company founded from uh 2000 to 2015 and we looked at their uh, valuation slash market cap growth over time we published this research in the in the uh, uh harvard business review and what we discovered is we didn't measure market share we measured what percentage of market cap goes to the category queen or king and that number is 76%. So when you make a decision to compete as opposed to create, you, only have you by definition, whether you realize it or not, are playing for 24%. Wow. 
That's why CMOs get fired. And that's why most venture partners never earn their salary back. This is why Steve Jobs said a thousand songs in your pocket instead of a competitor for the MP3 market. Yeah, absolutely. You're you're spot on. You're spot. Chris, you know, we could be talking to you for an hour. Ray, I'm sure this is your last question, but wow. I don't have one last question. Thing I we want to talk about with you if we have time, because I think Wait, it's yeah. there. Go for it. Go one minute. minute. Okay. So the biggest transformation in over a hundred years in the world is hiding in plain sight. And uh, it will be the cause of more market cap destruction and more CEO firings in the next five years than we've ever seen before. And it goes like this. If you're roughly 35 or younger, you are what's called a native digital. Mm -hmm. You grew up integrated with the machines. <laughs> and the definition of a native digital is somebody whose primary life experience is digital first and analog second. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens? N most CEOs are native analogs. They don't know this is fucking happening. Yeah. They don't know that in the United States, we have 140 million native digitals and 136 million native analogs. And here's a great example. The CEO of Goldman Sachs is a native analog who doesn't understand any of this. He made an edict recently. He says, everybody needs to come back to work. Half the company said, I don't think so. Because if you're a native digital, work is not a place. Yep. It's a space. Yep. And that's why when, when you argue with your children and try to take away their screen time, <laughs> you're pulling them out of their primary life. Yeah. And psychologists say today, if you have young people in your life and you don't meet them in the digital universe, you won't have a relationship with them. Well, guess what? That's true with CEOs and most C-level executives. And native digitals are 180 degree different. I'm a native analog. My primary experience, and I've worked in technology for 35 years, and I have a very rich native, I have native digital life. But my primary experience, if we were sitting down having a beer together, which I love to do, Ray, beers and burgers, soon, reschedule. Um, yeah, that's, let's do it. That would be my preference. Here's another wow. one. Oh. Ask a native digital after a session like this, what transpired? And here's what they'll tell you. We had a face-to-face -face meeting. Wow. And here's what a native analog <laughs> will say. We had a Zoom meeting. Yeah. Yep. This is the, We're the, most, oh. the most profound change in, 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 in over 100 years in the Amazing. definition of what a human being is. Native digitals are a new category of human being. And... If you are a Gen Xer or a boomer, you are the last native analogs ever. Wow. And this has profound impacts for how we build categories, companies, and products. And the vast majority of S&P 500 uh, CEOs are native analog. They don't understand any of this. And, um, and so this is a giant problem because there's going to be massive market cap destruction. And the entrepreneurs who understand it's digital first, analog second. We'll create more categories and more value with more new innovations than we've ever seen. Wow. You heard it first here. Chris Lockhead, entrepreneur, category designer, and former three-time Silicon Valley public company CMO. Um, you can catch him on Twitter at Lockhead. Check out his podcast. Check out his books. And check everything out on Amazon. And you and I are going to get a beer. Dave, I, Dave's IPA. That's what it's going to be. We'll see you around. <laughs> I'm going to bring you a case, Dave's IPA.
Nice. All right. Take care. Thanks, Chris. I'm jealous. You guys talking about burgers and beer, and I'm not. I'm in Boston. Okay. Uh, all right. Our next guest, Elizabeth Spears, co-founder, chief product officer at Plainsight AI. Elizabeth has led product productization for a number of multi-layer computer-intensive software platforms. Prior to Plainsight, Elizabeth launched and scaled the startup and enterprise product development divisions at Distillery, led collaborative innovation teams at Google and Bottlenose, and built product for enterprise real-time big data processing. As Plainsight's chief product officer, Elizabeth is responsible for Plainsight's product and marketing strategies and works with industry-leading clients to realize the hidden potential of their visual data with streamlined vision AI. Ray, we're going to learn about vision AI. Follow Elizabeth's company on Twitter at Plainsight AI, P-L-A-I-N-S-I-G-H-T-A-I. Welcome, Elizabeth, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks for having me. I feel like uh, Chris, is a, uh, Chris is amazing. I feel like we should now just introduce ourselves as like, I'm Elizabeth, you know, native digital. <laughs> you know, Elizabeth, every, every time I listen to Chris, it's just he expands your mind to to new dimensions. And uh, but when you talk about category design, obviously computer visioning and, and vision AI, talk about an incredibly red hot, fastest growing category within AI. Ray, I'll let you start with the question, but you're certainly yeah, no problem. You know, one of the things that we find the most interesting is the fact that, you know, NLP versus computer vision. I mean, you know, look at the difference, right? I mean, you'd think NLP would be a lot easier to do, but it seems like computer vision has had a lot more success. And, you know, this is one of the areas where we've seen some of the fastest growing applications of AI happening in computer vision. Tell us a little bit more, like, why is that the case? Why that trend occurred this way? And uh, what's happening next? And, and, yeah, what, is, and what is it? And what is it? Just for the uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start with um, with what it is. It's it just as a quick aside. It's it's funny that you mention kind of NLP versus um, vision AI, vision AI, because in some cases the two can sort of work together, right? You can have a model that can learn to describe what is in an image in human language. So there's just so much happening in this space, and it's. Um, it, it's, it's really an exciting kind of space to be a part of. So just to define it first, um, I think the easiest way to describe vision AI or uh, video analytics or computer vision is, um, is really to say almost anything that a person can see, uh, we can train a machine learning model to see and then treat it like any other data stream, right? So sort of digitizing sight and comprehension um, and then being able to make it more reliable, continuous, and increasingly accurate over time. Um, so that can be anything from understanding how much food is going into a waste bin in a kitchen uh, to like a global rollout of a vision-only uh, inventory system, right? So it, it really is um, all the way across the board. And, you know, as always, there's exceptions to that rule. Um, one of the most interesting one is when there's specialized cameras or equipment where you can see things that humans can't see, right? So that's uh, infrared, ultraviolet, thermal, um, microscopic imaging. And that's when you can start to do things like understand if um, equipment in a manufacturing facility is too hot or being able to detect invisible gas leaks and things like that. Um, but yeah, and, and then I think your second question was 
why is this a such a fast growing sector, right? Um, I mean, yeah, the reason I'm asking is like NLP is taking forever. You figure language is easier. Images are like, you know, gotta be complicated. Is that a blueberry? Is that a chihuahua? Like, I mean, what's going on, you know? So Yeah, and, and, and funny enough, I, I started my, uh, or I, I was in an NLP company probably 15 years ago. So, so, wow. um, so, so that evolution, I've, I've gone along with that evolution of um, machine learning and, and, and how it's, um, how it's changing. But even in the last five years, the, the difference in how we, uh, basically the general market understanding of vision is just night and day. It's, it's really incredible. We used to do a lot of sort of education around, you know, how you can use it and, and where it can be applied. And now really there's a, a little bit of that, but but there's this, there's usually this aha moment where our customers are like, oh my gosh, you know, and then they start asking all these questions of, can I use it this way? Can it solve this problem? You know, all, all over the board. But um, it's such a, it's such a, um, it, visual data is such an accessible kind of data, right? And so it really, um, people understand it a lot easier. And so it becomes one of the fastest and most practical ways to solve problems in a business. Like once you have a platform for, for being able to do that. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I don't want to spot, but our, our next guest is uh, Jonathan Becker and he's the president of shark sports and entertainment. And last time I was at a Sharks game, the building is shaking sold out the loudest stadium I've been to watching a, uh, you know, an NHL game. And I'm in Boston with the Bruins, you know, so a legacy franchise. Uh, how, how would you speak to, and, and Jonathan is a world renowned chief digital officer prior to becoming president of Shark Sports Entertainment. In the sports industry, where you have these incredible loyal fans, can you give us a sense of, you know, a, a high dense environment, lots of people, concession stands, lots of activities. How would you use vision technology to improve the fan experience? Do you have clients that are experimenting in this space with your company? Yeah. And, and um, one of the things that I love about vision is that it applies almost anywhere and it can mm -hmm. apply sort of at the, at the heart of a solution or it can, can apply in so many little places that just like you're saying, improve the experience for people. So, um, so for the sport itself, right? There, there are a lot of um, kind of traditional, I'll say, um, simplified ways of understanding sports better through vision. And a lot of those are done not with machine learning, but in kind of more traditional sort of like trajectory of the ball kind of ways and, and understanding speed and things like that. Um, but once you start using machine learning to yeah. to have basically more insights and to to um to look at some of that data you start to get into um so much more exciting detail right so it's like how was that that swing different than the one before it and it's not oh, just wow, kind of for wow. the fans right it can also be for um, the players improving their game training um, and improvements and training, you know, optimization like what, what strategy are you using when you actually win most times, right? You can look at um, things like that. And, um, and then if you look at a, at a, at a, like a stadium overall, there's so many cases from safety to improving oh, how people, wow. like people flow through a space. Um, you can even have sort of like virtualized maps to understand 
you know, where my closest beer is, like the most <laughs> important things for a user experience. That's awesome. Can I take my phone as I'm sitting around a rink, point to a player that's actively on ice and get their stats? Like, is that like- Oh yeah. Oh yeah, right. And um, you can get into uh, some things there around facial recognition and, and whether players will want that or not. Sure. Um, oh and, yeah, privacy and, implications. Right, 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 right. So, so you can talk yeah. through some of those um, <laughs> special cases. But uh, but yeah, it, you know, if you think about context in general, yeah. um, you could get their stats. The 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 like in tennis, the uniqueness of their swing. So like what's different about it? Are they doing something today than they did, you know, in a, in a different, um, wow. like earlier in the season and things like that. Just the, the types of things that we all see and understand in, a, in the day-to-day, -day, if you're really an expert in looking at that thing, can now be digitized. And it's, and it's so much deeper than people realize, sure. I think, right? Like there are a lot of cases out there um, now around sort of um, counting things and kind of understanding some more things in imagery. But when you start to get into the more advanced applications of it, it's like understanding movement. What is that behavior that's happening? What's most likely for a, for oh. something to happen next? You know, there's all models that can can be trained to learn this kind of thing. That's awesome. You know, awesome. that is the exciting part about what's going on with computer vision and AI. And, you know, I had you know, the opportunity to actually sit down once uh, in these large stadiums, some kind of NFL franchise events that Bala used to do at his former company. Uh, we'd go out there and, and, and they'd show us all the opportunities, right? And, and there's some huge things, right? I mean, you could actually say, hey, you know, section EE over here actually has less people and you can run a promotion and get people out there, right? Those are your next best actions, right? We're seeing on a casino floors, right? They, can, they were able to use computer vision to track COVID and contact. Right. I mean, it could be pretty much do contact and figure out contact tracing through computer vision and which clusters of individuals were hanging out together, you know, um, after work. Right. Or, you know, throughout the you know, throughout the day. So what are other use cases people should be thinking about um, that they can apply right away? I mean, most people think it's like harder to do than NLP, which is why I brought that up. When, in fact, that computer vision has a lot more success than NLP going forward. It really has. And and and. One of the reasons that it has is because, um, and this is kind of the heart, some of the heart of what Plainsight does is we make the process accessible to anyone because it should be, right? It's not, it's not this esoteric, you only need an engineer to, um, to be able to program that thing. And there's this layer of transit, translation between the subject matter expert with the knowledge and the engineer that that is, you know, coding what you're trying to accomplish, right? And and traditionally, there's a lot of things lost in translation there. But um, with vision, because you know it's it's visual data, we can build tools that make it get accessible for almost anyone for them to be able to have it work for them. So um, there's cases all over the place um, when you think about um, agriculture, right? If you have the biologists out there in the field, traditionally they have to go out there to, if they're trying to understand um, how many insects are in their whole field, right? They, <laughs> they, they have to go and on individual leaves, leaves count hundreds or even thousands of little insects and then do that a lot of times and then try to make some more generalized conclusion about the health of their fields. And, um, 
And so if you have a model that can do that thing, then obviously their time is- So you're saying with drones and flying them through, I can do and look at biodiversity on my fields um, just by actually you know, using computer vision instead of wasting all that time you know, with people actually running around counting manually. Exactly, and there's all sorts of methods for doing that, right? There's there's information that you can gather from satellite data, from from drone data, and in this case, it's um it's it's just mobile phones taking pictures of individual leaves oh, and then being able to walk it around. That data. Wow, wow. When, when I think when I think of vision AI and computer visioning technology over the next five ten years, I am most excited about autonomous vehicles. To be able to get to level four or five autonomy, to be able to make those real-time decisions based on your algorithms and your visioning capabilities, uh, what excites you most? Um, and, and will autonomous vehicles be the most logical way for uh, where we will hit a tipping point in terms of mass understanding and appreciation of innovation in this space? You know, I'll add it's the LIDAR so. versus computer vision Elon Musk argument. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, sorry, what versus computer vision? LIDAR versus computer oh, vision. LIDAR. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> See, we're like, man, nah, LIDAR, forget it. Yeah. I can't get into something so controversial. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, sure. <laughs> we have folks from Ford and GM watching too. So, but anyway. <laughs> um, no, they should but be I'm using your stuff. I was going to go for it. He's so. really right. Vision can do. Um, vision can do a lot, especially when you have cameras at, at multiple angles. But, you know, I think there's a few categories of things that are coming together to um, make the, the future of computer vision really, really exciting. Um, the first one is, is advancement of the technology itself, right? Mm -hmm. So there are, there, there's, there's processes like, or techniques like uh, few shot learning, right? So this is something where um, a model only needs to see something of like very few times, and then all of a sudden it can start recognizing um, what you want it to recognize, right? And uh, so you can imagine putting this into the hands of almost anyone in their everyday lives. So it doesn't require kind of a big data annotation effort and sort of all of this data handling, you could just say, you know, my sister could say, all right, this is my dog. I want to get an alert when my dog is leaving the nice. yard, right? Nice. Or, <laughs> or wow. kind of all of these cases. But um, this, the second category of things is is just the, the hardware advancements, right? So that makes more solutions, more practical. And, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, but the third category is, making it simpler for um, anyone to be able to build a model. And that's where I think the future of this really changes kind of our lives is, is being able to make this work for us in sort of every kind of case. So, so like, um, you know, knowing if my chicken is baking unevenly or if I'm um, undercooking it, right? Or being able to get higher quality healthcare to less served areas. Wow. Um, and, uh, or, or, you know, things that really matter to our society, right? Like 24 seven monitoring for leaks, spills, fires, mm -hmm. illegal deforestation. Um, and, and so I think, you know, it, it, it's creating almost a new way for us as a society to share our knowledge and collaborate and make that practical in our everyday. 
And so anyway, so I, I think all those things really coming together it is, is what's going to make computer vision more and more exciting over the, over, you know, the next five years. Elizabeth, that is amazing. We see what you guys are doing in construction and cameras and what's going on with the environment and even COVID-19. Uh, it's amazing stuff that you're doing here, especially on the uh, platform that you're doing. So Elizabeth Spears, co-founder and chief product officer at Plainsight AI. You can follow the Twitter handle for Plainsight AI. Check out the website. And of course, uh, check out some of the work that um, Elizabeth and team have done. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah, I didn't even think about all. The, I mean, the use cases are. I mean, oh wow, it's 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 amazing. Okay, this is. Uh, I, I hate to use a baseball analogy, but oh. this is where we oh. bring up a cleanup hitter expecting a grand slam, and there's no question about. And we get a hat trick. And we get a hat trick. <laughs> Much better. That's right. I don't know why I'm using a baseball analogy. Okay, our our, our next guest, Jonathan Becker, is president of Sharks Sports Entertainment. The parent organization of the NHL San Jose Sharks, the AHL San Jose Barracuda, three sharks, ice facilities, and nonprofit sharks foundation. Lots of incredible organizations in that portfolio. A longtime Sharks fan and season ticket holder, Jonathan is responsible for the organization's overall strategy with a particular focus and end-to-end customer experience. Prior to joining Shark Sports and Entertainment, Jonathan spent a decade at SAP in a variety of roles. This is where I first met Jonathan, including Chief Marketing Officer and Chief Digital Officer. Anytime Ray, there was like a world ranking of the most influential CMO CDOs, he was at the top of the list. And as a, as a young CMO trying to figure out how to learn from the best, I would follow his, his lead. While at SAP, Jonathan oversaw large-scale sports entertainment partnerships, including the naming rights agreement for the SAP Center at San Jose. So, you know, he was subconsciously, you know, interviewing for the role. <laughs> a three-time technology company CEO, Jonathan is on the board of directors of multiple organizations, including the Churchill Club, Coros, uh, and Pixley. He's a frequent speaker at events and is published author on a variety of topics, including his own popular blog, Manage by Walking Around. You can follow him, another early adopter on Twitter, at Jay Becker, J-B-E-C-H-E-R. Welcome, Jonathan, to Disrupt TV. Thank you, Vala. I think I joined Chris by saying the, the longer the introduction, the better for my mom, but the not so good for the audience. <laughs> Again, I had to cut your bio. I'm sorry. We get like remarkable people to come on the show. <laughs> You know, Jonathan, hey, just, we've known each other for years. And, you know, I think one of the toughest things you've been going through over the last 24 months is is one of the most conservative and strictest, um, you know, protocols ever um, in the country, right? I mean, we were probably the last county to get rid of mask mandates in Santa Clara County. And yep. you've been operating in that constraint and that environment. How has that worked, right? I mean, sports teams are all about density as a business model. It's about getting people together and excited. Like, what are the things that you've done to, to make it work and, and to really, you know, help the organization bring, you know, find the right balance. Yeah. So usually I go off on a riff saying we're not a sports team. We're an entertainment organization because mm -hmm. we put on 180 events per year. So that's every other day. And only about 50 to 80 of those are hockey, but I won't go in that riff today. <laughs> and obviously the pandemic was disastrous for anybody in the business of live entertainment, right? I mean, you can't convene thousand person events. And if you're all about the in-person shoulder, shoulder experience that shut us down for 18 months, but mandates were even worse in some sense because one mandate you can survive with, but for most of the time we had federal mandates, NHL, that's national hockey league mandates, state of California mandates, city of San Jose mandates and County of Santa Clara mandates. 
And as you might imagine, the Venn diagram them basically said there's zero way that we could actually be in compliance of all of them simultaneously because just no so what do you do? You go to the lowest common denominator. You find the way that well people will be least because you just don't want fines and technically I guess I could have gone to jail for being out of compliance as well. And Ray, I guess the the short answer is you just don't let people in at first, and which we didn't do, and we actually even relocated the franchise to Arizona for a short period of time where the rules were a bit different there. But when we came back, we invested in what else? In technology. Because when people said boosters or vax were required, and if somebody shows up with a fake vaccine card, it's actually my fault if I let them in, not their wow. fault for, va for violating the vaccine card. So we partnered with Clear, for those of you that used Clear for airports as well, and created a health pass for use in our environment. So biometrics, you take a selfie, ensures that you're you, you look up to see whether it's valid or not, and then you get a green light or red light. A green light says you're authorized to come in, a red light says you're not. And there's some gray areas. What if your vaccine came from the Bahamas? Well, we can't automate that, so you have to go to secondary screening and have somebody look it up. And we, we actually had vaccine passports from places like the Ukraine long before the current skirmish, and we're like, can we accept this particular vaccine because it's not accepted by the FDA? And accept the long tail of this, trying to do it in scale for 20,000 people within a span of 20 minutes is almost impossible. It was a very interesting operational problem. That's amazing. It's a, I can't imagine you have technology lessons to share with us because, and you might, because you, you've always been a technology trailblazer. Uh, long before you joined San Jose organization. Uh, thank you. Uh, it, it's just a known fact in, in the inner circle of mentors and sponsors of mine, you're up there uh, because of your business acumen and your understanding of deep technology. So what are some of the lessons you've learned over the last two years going through this hardship, knowing that your team would even have to potentially play international games in Canada and you got a whole set of you know, the dimensions of constraints were unreal. Uh, so, so it's an awful Venn diagram. It's a 3D Venn yeah. diagram. Yeah. yeah. Or, or maybe I just, maybe I just focused a question to, how, how, how did you change your leadership style? How did you change, you know, you're the president, you're the, you, you represent the brand promise more so than anyone, maybe with the exception of the players. What did you have to change yourself based on all the hardship you've experienced in the last two years? Yeah. So, so maybe I'll give, before I answer your follow-on question, I'll, I'll give uh, Ray and his team a plug, which is we went full force into what's now called the metaverse. We simulated hockey games. We let players create their own avatars and play alongside professional players. We did a lot of work with Twitch and Discord, for wow. which we won a Supernova Award. So thank you, Ray, for that uh, as well. So that's one example of trying to keep the lights on when the lights literally can't be on. But since, Vala, since you, you verbed on your question, I'll say um, I'm very much of a why do we always have to do it that way kind of person. Um, sports and entertainment, as you know from your previous career, looks in the rearview mirror all the time and talks about tradition and records and stuff like that. Totally. And I've always felt if you do that, it's like driving a car always looking in the rearview mirror. You're allowed to crash if you don't do that. Um, but in such a disruptive time, by pushing people to look forward too far – I think I freaked them out a little bit too much. So from a leadership style, I went more to incremental progress as opposed to large disruption, which is sort of my natural style. 
And I'm reminded by something of something I learned in undergrad about scenario planning. Oh, yeah. I got better at scenario planning and how do you build 20, 30, 40, 50 scenarios about potential futures? Because we have no idea. And particularly in that first year, no one had any idea what would happen. Yeah. Hoping that some combination of those 20, 30, 40 scenarios would be the ones that panned out. Now, you might think that's extraordinarily wasteful. And in normal times, it is extraordinarily wasteful. Mm -hmm. But in highly disruptive times, you, you force people to project. And because they're building imaginary scenarios, it's much less emotional. And they're able to dream in different ways they did before. And honestly, none of our scenarios came exactly true. But the reality of these mandates and the reality of scenarios of reopening, we could pick from scenario one and scenario two. So that learning how to do not traditional planning, not three-month planning, one-year planning, but just simply scenario building was a skill I reinvented for myself and was a better management technique. Did your CMO background, because one of the things you were known for is ability to anticipate markets reaction to new products and services that company would bring to, uh, you know, to the market. So were you able to build that anticipatory muscle and these scenario plans based on your learnings as a successful CMO or just uh, the environment led to you having to be more collaborative. And again, you're the president, so you yeah. don't necessarily need to build consensus. I don't know who's above you. I guess the owner, but the, the <laughs> so, owner, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, you know, you didn't have to burn calories doing 30 scenarios when you're the president, yet you did. So was it your marketing success background that helped you, you know, tell better stories and create, you know, a, a so, more of a... Fantastic way to think about it. So two answers there. One is, I don't believe in management by fiat. Yes, it's true. I didn't have to build 30 scenarios. I could have just said, I think I'm the smartest guy in the room. And whenever somebody says they're the smartest guy in the room, they're not. Yeah. So that's a terrible way to start. True. And by building scenarios, you actually help people put their DNA into the plans. You, uh, I used to and say the DNA at the crime scene shouldn't say that. So the oregano and the spaghetti sauce. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they start believing it because yeah. in the end, you may know my personal mantra is culture eats strategy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think I'm really good at strategy, but if people don't believe it, if they're not part of that, it just never works. So management by fiat is much less powerful than by influence. And so by helping people visualize these scenarios, which is very much of a marketing job and telling stories, and my stories often involve animals, which is another side thing as well, because I find them Sharks. threatening and more believable. <laughs> And frankly, here's what I'd love to have a debate with Chris sometimes, although I'm a huge Chris fan and I remember his days from Play Better, yeah. which I think there is the power of brand in things that are less tech oriented. I, for example, as a CMO, I never had somebody literally put their logo on my flesh. But in sports world, I have a whole bunch of fans that actually burn their logo on their flesh. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've paid for people to put their logo on their body and they do it willingly. So there, there are some changes then in enterprise software, but yes, storytelling about potential outcomes and scenarios was the most powerful leadership thing that I used. That's awesome. That's yeah, awesome. no, that's amazing. And that's what you do want to have. And when we think about storytelling, moving forward, what's going on, I mean, what's the narrative for 2022 and beyond for you? Like what fans want to do? Where do you see the excitement, right? Are there new technologies? Are there new types of entertainment formats that you're looking at, right? I mean, I spent South by Southwest with um, this company that was doing blockchain ticketing, like NFT ticketing to actually help prevent scalping. And that was pretty wild. They're going to do it at probably a Bitcoin 2023, right? There's lots of these things that are popping up and you must be seeing a bunch of these technologies take shape and of course change the fan experience. 
Yeah. So I'll start with the core of sports entertainment won't change. You want an emotional connection with your favorite artist or your sports team, et cetera. If it's sport, you want your home team to win, maybe the beer being cold, et cetera. But of the three <laughs> disruptive technologies that people like to talk about all the time, which is 5G's, NFT, yeah, exactly, and Metaverse. Is that your new official Metaverse? Yeah, Metaverse wave. I don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah, with with my apologies to and all my friends that are in uh, high speed communication, 5G doesn't seem to really matter for us. Maybe 10 or 20 percent performance improvement when in our building mm. works well outdoors, not so well indoors with tens of thousands of people around. Mm. NFTs is a maybe still to be said. Um, unfortunately, the vast majority of NFTs are not really on the blockchain. Uh, and so, in fact, they're actually backed by good old SQL, which means actually the creator can actually unlock your NFT and give it to somebody else because to use blockchain thing, there is no mutability in most NFTs right now. So blockchain, big fan of NFTs, still trying to figure out how to make it really work. I am actually a big believer in the metaverse. And I'll say that, but not for the fan experience part necessarily. The part we're doubling down on is the training part uh, if you look at my organization, we're roughly 250 full-time employees and between 1,000 and 1,500 part-time employees, the people that check your tickets, prepare your foods, et cetera. Life is about a bunch of unexpected outcomes. You can't scenario planning. For, that, for a real building, et cetera, you need thousands of scenarios. And the longer you work for us, the better employee you are and the more you can deliver exceptional experiences I want to simulate those experiences in the metaverse so people can react to them and then give them feedback on how they reacted so that when their first day of work and a disruptive fan dumps their beer on the concourse, you know what to do because you've actually had that training in the metaverse as well. So that's where I'm the biggest fan is on employee and part-time employee experiences, less so on fan experiences on day one. That's amazing. Um, shift a little bit more towards technology discussion because we have the fortune of having a technologist who happens to be president of, a, of an incredible organization. Uh, discussions around crypto acceptance in professional sports, uh, is that something that you see pressure where, in terms of scenario planning, when we mentioned hat trick at the beginning of the, uh, of the segment, there's a hat trick, you're all-star player. Uh, can you gamify the in-stadium experience and only in-stadium experience where the fans can bid on the puck or the stick and the highest bid uh, can, and it can be done through crypto. And portion of that uh, winning uh, uh, funds that's raised goes to a charity of, of Sharks Choice. Is there a way to gamify in-stadium experience so I'm incentivized not to sit in front of my 8, 8K high-def TV and actually come to the stadium and also be able to walk away with artifacts that potentially can be managed and done through, through crypto? Bala, do you sit in my management team meetings and know what we're secretly working on? <laughs> Is this breaking news? Is this breaking news? <laughs> so so you, you may or may not know, we're the only team in the National Hockey League that accepts crypto today. I did you know? not know. I did not know. Oh, and wow. only one of five professional sports franchises, at least here in the U.S., accepts crypto. Uh, we accept, I think, 12 coins today, of which five are U.S.-based stable coins. Uh, amusingly, the most popular coin that we've been given that people have used Sorry to say this, Elon Musk reference is Dogecoin. So we've had yeah. most people use Dogecoin. <laughs> I would have um, guessed that. I would have guessed that. I would have guessed uh, that. Number two is ETC. Bitcoin has not actually been used yet. So I don't know what that necessarily means. Maybe that's because the price is so high and you don't necessarily want to use it. 
And yes, as a way of differentiating the in arena experience with sitting on your couch, because that's what I view my primary competitor is, is getting people off their couch and getting some exercise, getting in their cars or their self-driving car or whatever it is and getting to one of our physical arenas. Then when a, a moment happens, like 30 days ago, one of our star players scored five goals in a game. Now, as you probably know, as a hockey fan, that, that happens very rarely at all. Very Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Seven times in the history of hockey or something like that as well. Unbelievable. Wow. Um, sadly, because of the mandates, there were only 9,000 people that saw it live. Oh. But in a recent survey of our fans, 20,000 people said, I was there. The Will Chamberlain hundred points in a game. Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Only so, so were there. Yeah, yeah. Being able to prove that you were there, Providence, based on beacons and in-person app, is a wonderful thing to do that we will roll out. Uh, that's Amazing. what we're working on. Amazing. And then being able to bid on one of those pucks, potentially, assuming the player doesn't want them, based on digital and and even your bid, jersey. And a jersey or a signature or some proof is exactly where the that's where the in-fan experience, I think, will be differentiated. It's going to be an amazing incremental revenue stream. And if it's a donated portion, at least to charity, I think it's business can be the greatest platform for change. And, and this is an incredible scenario. By the way, uh, Ray can get a suite at the Sharks game. He's a big crypto whale. So I'm just letting you know, you know, uh, Ray, <laughs> if you want to pay him your favorite. Vala, a plug for our foundation, because I think our foundation does amazing work. We're in Silicon Valley where there are tons of corporations, and yet our foundation is the 17th largest giver in all of Silicon Valley. Yeah, no, it's one of the biggest and congratulations there. Hey, speaking about um, causes, things that you're uh, passionate about these days, what's hot for you? Like what are the, what are the areas where you say, this is an area where you know, I want to lend some support and uh, lend some help out there? Uh, so outside my day job, it's emerging education. Um, unfortunately, as wealthy as Silicon Valley is, we're still a area of have and have not. So a lot of my yes. personal time is on mentorship and trying to figure out how, I mean, let's be, let's be clear, the world needs more people involved in the overall economy. And so trying to transform part of the valley to be feel like part of the valley is a lot of where my attention is going. That's amazing. Hey, fact, let me know how I can help. So. Next week, I'll be out in Merced uh, doing some work there. We're dedicating some uh, areas. Merced's becoming part of Sharks territory as well. That's very, very cool. Let us know how we can help, and uh, we'll catch up afterwards. We're here with Jonathan Becker, president of Sharks Sports and Entertainment. He's a renaissance man. Of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Jay Becker. And, of course, we won't ask him what trades are going these days. We'll keep it quiet. So. No, no, trade <laughs> on Monday. Can't do that. So. <laughs> Take care. Thank hey, so thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. One of the smartest CMOs, CDOs, and now obviously president. He's just smart. He's, he's just, just smart. smart. He doesn't he's even just need a title. Yeah, no, honestly, <laughs> honestly. But he's a category maker. Like he, what he was doing at SAP as a CMO and then CDO, and certainly what he's done with the Sharks. I mean, he's uh, he leaves a unique imprint of his thinking, vision, goals, and has that permeate through the through the companies and organizations he's a part of. So and he's never afraid. I mean, that's the beauty of it. I mean, he's willing to pioneer and he's a change agent. So definitely yeah. amazing. But yeah, what a show. <laughs> I think I lost 10 pounds. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, I have to burn calories to keep up with these smart folks. And yeah, I mean, listen, I can I can listen to Chris all day, all night. And uh, and and Elizabeth and Jonathan were stunningly good. Um, Anyway, that was that was our episode. Next week, episode 272, we have Evan Crystal, business a business thought leader and a technology influencer. 
We have Sarisa Ravanson, CEO of DigiMentors, an inaugural martial law visiting <coughs> professor at Stony Brook University's uh, School of Journalism. He's a former chief digital officer for City of New York <coughs> and CDO of um, Museum of Fine Arts. So another incredible pedigree of digital transformation at large institution, largest city in the world, one of the largest cities in the world, and now CEO of um, DigiMentor. So it's going to be a fantastic show. And uh, Ray, your closing remarks, and uh, good luck trying to summarize the last hour, but <laughs> what, what, what's set up for you and uh, you can summarize for our audience? Hey, look, authenticity is the foundation of, uh, you know, uh, a good society of building trust. I think that's one of the things that Chris was trying to push out there. There's so much uh, going on in category design, but it starts with authenticity. It starts with trust. And it really starts with an understanding of empathy moving forward. And what's interesting about computer vision that's happening today is it's really um, it's really going to change the way we look at things. It's creating another sensory area. It's creating the ability to take analytics, automation, and AI, bring those together to actually improve decision velocity. One of the things we've been talking about, right, the ability to quickly make decisions, grab the right information, get the context, and really serve up that next best action. But uh, if we see what's going on with what Jonathan's doing, you know, in terms of like, you know, dealing with scenarios, dealing with chaos, crisis, you know, building a team, putting culture together. I mean, all these things are elements of great leadership. And we're seeing organizations that understand how to bring these three things together. Those are the ones that are succeeding. Those are the ones with the right leaders and, of course, the right change agents. Back to you, Vala. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not much I can add to that. Listen, if it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you to our community. Thank you for making us smarter. Thank you for inspiring us to connect with the best and brightest in the world. And if you have suggestions in terms of who you want Ray and I to bring on the show, please follow Disrupt TV Show on Twitter. Follow us on iTunes, on Spotify, all the various social channels, and let us know. We're going to do our best to listen to what you have to say and uh, modify our, our calendar and our schedule based on your input. So thank you so and much. Jonathan, we'll see you in the green room. Sir.